Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with my co-host, Matt Scott. And we're going to talk about something a little different today. What are we going to talk about, Matt? Van life. Van, hashtag. It's very trendy. Hashtag van it's Basically, life. if you were to take Zoolander and make it into overlanding, that would be van life. It's very trendy right now. Oh, I very see. and I, very hot right I, now. I like that. I like that. You have, you have your, everybody's got their own clothing. They've got their own version of sparkling water and everything is desaturated. Every, when everything is desaturated. Okay. I see. <laughs> Even the photography is desaturated. Even the photography. And we've got some cool people with us. We've got Chris Cordes, who has worked with us for for eight years, started off as a as an intern out of Embry Riddle University here in Prescott, and is one of our editors. Uh, he manages Expedition Portal, so all of that great content that you see on the portal is is curated by Chris. He's an authority on the overlanding subject and has traveled extensively around the country in many international trips as well. Uh, we're very fortunate to have him on the team, really a master of his craft. And he, he has also started traveling over the last couple of years full time. And we'll talk to him a little bit more about that. And Chris, uh, who do we have with you today? My girlfriend, Brittany, who's probably a bigger expert on the van life than I could ever be. She's been doing it for a while and is really integrated into the whole community. So, yeah, we're thank you for being with us, Brittany. When I first saw your van parked in the Overland Journal parking lot, uh, <laughs> probably almost a year ago now, yep. I was like, that is such a cool van. It's one of the original, it's very comfy. Yeah. It's like, and it's also one of those original style sprinters. So it's not yeah. the, it's not the super modern one. It's the super cool one. And another thing that makes that van even cooler for this podcast is it was actually where, we, where record- we started. Yeah. We recorded the first three episodes of the Overland Journal podcast in Brittany's van. So we all owe you a debt of gratitude. Uh, <laughs> and thank you for being on the podcast, Brittany. Yeah, you bet. So Brittany, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to live out of a van and how long have you been living out of your van? Um, so I would say just travel in general is what inspired me to do so. Um, I lived in Southern California. I road trips everywhere from San Diego on the weekends, whenever I could, um, doing as much hiking and backpacking outdoor activities as I could. Um, and to a point you can only do so much within a two to three day weekend. Yeah. And I did everything that I wanted to do within about an eight hour drive of San Diego. And so I started looking at, Maybe I need to move, um, looking at other places to live. And then I stumbled upon this van life community who um, the premise of it is really just to get you closer to where you want to be. And that was kind of what started it and inspired me to do so. And that makes a lot of sense. So, so you're, you were already spending a lot of time outdoors and the van allowed you to stay more connected with the outdoors on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. A lot more comfortable than I Tacoma. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And, and Matt and I have both traveled extensively out of wagons. And I think even about the expedition seven trip and the vehicle was really only a place to sleep. It was not a place to live. No, I think, I think that's, what's so appealing about a van or about van life is you get to a point where you you've been on the road for a while and you, you need that time to yourself. You need to be able to, you know, shut the door on the world and kind of look, look in or just 
just get away from people and watch Netflix or read a book or something. And exactly. the van yeah. is, is, is really perfect for that. I mean, if you talk to any experienced overlander, usually once they've been on the road for a year or two years, there's always that endless pursuit of interior space. It's yeah. the place to reset, to live your life when you need a break from everything else so that you can go back to enjoying the journey that you're on. And Dan mentioned that Dan Greck mentioned that, yeah. that his next vehicle, he wanted to have more interior space. And and I believe that he acknowledged that the sportsmobile that was with him in Africa, it went everywhere he went in his Jeep. It got essentially the same fuel economy because it was a diesel, but it was literally a home that these people were able to have that respite, that, that removal from the environment that when I think about my travels on a motorcycle or I think my travels in a wagon, you're in the environment all the time. Yep. And, and that's, that is a nice difference. And the intention of this podcast is not to say that there's any difference between van life and overlanding. I think that the one thing that might be a slight difference is that overland travel tends to include more remote travel. Whereas there are a lot of people that travel in a way of saying van life that they may never leave a paved road. Uh, Their vehicle isn't suitable for that, or maybe they just a gravel road for them. It's the ability to live and wander and travel. Whereas oftentimes overlanding by intention is the goal to get remote. And that's where you can see that crossover occur. So this is when a van is also getting remote, getting off the grid, able to operate off the grid. That's when you start to see that parallel. And oftentimes I think that overlanding when you're, you have a very specific purpose or a very specific trip. It's I'm driving from Alaska to Argentina or something like that. In van life, you may not necessarily have a destination or even a set amount of time. Overlanding is the same way, I guess, to a certain extent. It can be, yeah. The van life thing is much more, I'm choosing to live my life in a vehicle and for the freedom that it allows me. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a good distinction. Oftentimes I think of my own overland trips, they almost always have a destination in mind. I'm trying to get to Zambia or I'm trying to get to the South pole or, or Indiana. Let's not forget Indiana. Indiana. (laughs) Exactly. Classic destination. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so Brittany, tell us a little bit about your van. I think that Chris would honestly better um, answer that question. Does it have a name? Yeah, I want to know. Did you you give it a name? So I'm not a person who names vehicles, and Chris is a person who names vehicles. I think that's um, bad. I think everybody should. He kept pestering me about it, and it came down to if you're going to make me name it, it's going to be something silly like Wayne. Yeah, and so Wayne the van, it is. So Wayne's a pretty van life name. It's pretty, yeah, very much so. Very 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 trendy. It actually works out really great. um, The first. When we left our very first trip, Wayne, you think of just the party animal, party on Wayne. (laughs) And our very first trip we had taken, we got on the road and it started raining. I turned the windshield wipers on and the windshield wiper completely wrapped around the mirror. And then when I went to open the door to fix it, it completely snapped off. Oh no. And it was kind of like, okay, well, this is party on Wayne. Let's keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things with van life is that the van is is more of a tool. I th- I feel sometimes overlanders have a little bit more identity um, wrapped up in it. Yeah, you know they. Uh, how do you say it? I think part of van life is being a little bit stealth, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, being able to stealth camp. But you've spent a lot of a, a lot of time and care and effort on the interior on your van. That right. was one of the things that I noticed. Very little. You, you, you did that yourself. I want to say right. Partially. So I actually 
purchased the van in Phoenix um, from a guy named Brad who works and builds and flips vans. Um, so I had seen his work done before. I knew that it was going to be good construction. Um, so he had done a lot of the basics. And then when I purchased it, we took it back to my parents' house and my dad and I basically redid all of the cabinetry. My envision was to utilize every single centimeter of space that I could. um, And that required basically redoing the entire cabinetry. Relocating electronics, relocating the fridge, adding new cabinets that weren't there before. Right. It was a re redesign basically of what was already there. Yeah. And what's interesting over the last week or so in preparations for this podcast, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on van life mm-hmm. and you, you, it looks like you have an emphasis towards the bed being set up all the time. And then the big garage in the back, whereas I see other vans that tend to focus on this kind of aisleway, a long galley, yep. and then a convertible table to a bed scenario. Right. Uh, what led you to choose to have the the full-time bed garage system. I have many toys. Yeah. (laughs) I have a lot of friends who have chosen one or the other. And um, there's even a lot of conversions out there that are Murphy bed. So you can have both a lot more easy than just the drop down table. Our choice was that way because we have a lot of toys. Um, I love being outdoors and a part of outdoor activities is that you have to have gear. So I have backpacking gear. We have snowshoes, we have snowboards, we have everything that we own. Surfboards, uh, rock climbing gear, you name it. We basically stuffed into the back of that van. Yeah. And that wouldn't really be feasible in that long galley style. Right. When you have the couch and the table that drops down, you lose a lot of that storage space. And a lot of people end up running a roof box or something. Yeah. Which everybody sees the, the drop down kitchen table bed and they go, oh man, wouldn't that be nice to have that seating area where you can hang out. But when you're literally dropping that down and recreating a bed every single day from morning and night, it gets old quickly and you lose so much storage space. Yeah. In my experience, uh, even around the expedition seven stuff, the more that you have to set anything up, it's the reason why we actually didn't run a trailer or a roof tent is the fact that I could leave everything in the vehicle. It was kind of like that garage style. So they were high roof land cruisers where you could have all of your gear in the same spot and never have to mess with it. And we actually left the beds set up in the back so you get tired at the end of the day, you just crawl out of the driver's seat into the bed and you're, and you're camping, you're sleeping. So that's an interesting point. And I think it's an important one for people to remember. In fact, I remember Alan Feld from Sportsmobile, who's a long, that's a longtime van company, one of the oldest from the 1960s. And he told me that everybody wants to buy the get the long galley aisleway style, mm-hmm. but the one you want to actually live with is the one that has a permanent bed set up. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on your lifestyle when you're choosing a layout. I mean, I have friends that love the table because they love to entertain and they, they chase after meetups all around the country so that they can be within other people in this community. And then they can all sit around the table and play cards or have dinner, have potlucks, things like that when it's raining outside and shove everyone in the van and you have room for that. We don't really have entertainment spaces because we have the bed, but for our life and the way that we do, it's really only the two of us in the van. Although yeah. when we were at Overland Expo, we we would have three or four people, quite a few yeah. people in there in yeah. the van. And the way that you've got that passenger seat that turns around, it, right. it gives a spot 
And you work from the road. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. So I had traveled a lot. Like I said, I primarily three day weekends, lots of road trips. And that was because I had a full-time job. And for me, in order to live this lifestyle and just live in general, I need to have a job and a stable income. Um, I had already tried the whole, let's sell everything you own and just see how long you can last. Um, Moved to to Thailand, which is a pretty significant jump. Yeah. So I jumped and I traveled Asia for a few months and eventually ran out of money and had to come home. And so I decided I wasn't going to do that again. So I do work remotely. I'm a program portfolio manager for a financial tech company. We work primarily with software development and within that SaaS space, I don't, I'm not client facing. I'm only internal, which makes it a lot easier to be on the road. Um, A lot of my internal employees, they know that I live in a van, so I don't have to explain that on every call, but I do a lot of video conferencing calls and stay connected that way. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, I I think one of the questions people always have about van life, about overlanding, about, you know, extended length travels is how people are, how they're affording to do it. I mean, obviously there is the the method that is sell everything you own and, and keep going. Some people are just fortunate enough to either just, just to have the money. I mean, w- when you go to these communities and when you go to these meetups that you talk about, what kind of jobs are, are commonplace with, within that, that's that circle of people. I mean, I would say that a lot of the jobs that people in the van life community hold are the same jobs that everybody else holds. Um, The difference is that technology these days has enabled people to do those jobs remotely. And while some people may just look at that as an opportunity to work from home, other people say, I can do this job from anywhere in the world or anywhere in the US if you aren't allowed to travel internationally for work and be able to do it that way. You know, I I mean, do you find that having to work while you're on the road and while you're traveling takes away from the experience I mean, I know on some of my longer trips where I've, where I've tried to, you know, work from the road, for example, I always, I know I always get really frustrated because it's like, you want to have the, you know, you're, you're traveling so you can have the experience and you're working so you can afford to travel, but then the working gets in the way of the experience and you end up, you know, I I mean, I I found I ended up just like sitting in coffee shops the entire time. Like I'm, like I'm very familiar (laughs) You know, with with the coffee shops of the California coast kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I don't want to speak for Brittany here, but I would, I would definitely say that you have to look at it differently. You cannot look at it as I'm traveling. You have to look at it as I'm living the same life that I would be at home. The difference is that at five o'clock when I get off of work, my backyard's a new place. I can go mountain biking. I can go explore the area. But if you really want to experience a place, you're not going to be able to do it in the same amount of time that you normally would. You can't take a week and go to the Northern California coast. Yeah. You have to spend a month. Cause at you kind of, yeah, coast. you kind of have to pace yourself and you, you mean, obviously you have to have internet. That's the, the, mm-hmm. the caveat of all of this. I mean, do you find that the internet connectivity is, is, is pretty good or, I mean, do you, do you use like a cell phone booster? Do you have satellite internet? I've always looked at satellite internet. You name as it, a we've got it. Yeah. Yes. In general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, having internet is very key for primarily my job, but also for a lot of what Chris does, he could do his writing and his photography and whatnot from anywhere, which is what we primarily end up doing on the weekends. But my job requires me to be logged in and available and ready to take calls. So you're at a desk nine to five. Yeah. Kind of, kind of yep. I am on my laptop. Typically a lot of video calls. We use hotspots. We use a Weboost for cell signal. I think right now we have 
an AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, Hotspot, plus a Skyroam, which operates on various networks, depending on what yeah. country you're in, plus a WeBoost and, and a Netgear and antenna. A Netgear antenna. Okay. So, I mean, we've basically covered the spectrum on if one provider doesn't have service, someone else most likely will. And it's really not as expensive as you think it would be. I mean, it depends on what plan you go with. I mean, internet at home is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're not paying a mortgage, which I mean, there, there is going to be things that will be more expensive living on the road full time. And right. I mean, I think about when I'm traveling internationally, it costs me $10 a day to keep my cell phone connected in the same fashion that it does here because I don't swap SIMs. So it is expensive. I mean, it's, you know, over $300 a month just for me to keep my cell phone connected. Switch to Google Fi. Yeah, I thought, of, I, well, I had Google <laughs> well, you Fi. had it. Yeah. I had it for it doesn't a while. Work for everybody. Yeah, I think it works great internationally. Uh, I don't think it works that well domestically because you're they only have the Sprint T-Mobile network. It's so. perfect for me because I hate when people call me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my phone didn't work. Yeah. Well, Chris, tell tell the audience a little bit about what your typical work schedule looks like. And I mean, you, you being a journalist, you really and your job is a travel journalist, so it fits. It seems to fit perfect. Yeah, I mean, I would say that my typical work week is pretty close to Brittany's at this point. Um, I'm going to spend most of my weekdays at the desk, writing, answering emails, um, editing photos. But the weekends are where I get to go out, hit the trail and capture all the content that for the life that we live, whether that's um, rock climbing or last weekend we went surfing in Baja. Um, the exceptions obviously being we we do media trips. So sure. being able to find airports to fly out of, um, and try to schedule your life around that is always a crazy time. Well, and I, I mean, from my perspective as the publisher, I think that there's a lot of upside to us for you being on the road like that, because you're always interacting with new people. You're experiencing new events that we would maybe otherwise not go to. You are able to interact with companies that are located throughout the country. That would be very expensive for us to fly people to. So there's a lot of advantages that I believe that you provide to us as an organization. And I think that when people are starting to travel like this or looking at the van life is find a way to, to add additional value through your travels. And that's one way, one way to make that happen. I think, I mean, even the amount that I'm able to interface with our consumers, our readers, our listeners now has been fantastic. Uh, I met, one man um, when I was in Nova Scotia who just happened to be an Overland Journal subscriber recognized the truck and he and I ended up grabbing a beer and hanging out and it led to a five-day trip that we did all throughout the interior of Nova Scotia on trails that I probably would have never found without someone who had grown up there. Yeah, um, the power of local knowledge. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, every every time it surprises me because we have our local trails that we love and that nobody really knows about. And then everybody else has got those too. And if you can interact with those folks yeah, for me, when I travel, because I don't travel as long as you guys do, I'll, you know, maybe a couple months at a time, I do try to do three full days of work a week. And when I mean full days, it's like I get up at six and I work until 11 or midnight. And then I also work 70 hours a week, typically when I'm home, that way I can allow for longer chunks of time to travel. So I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. 
the important thing is, I believe, is to be reasonable about what you expect to do. I, I think that a lot of folks expect to be able to translate their job towards travel without making adjustments, and they always expect they can get more done or they don't solve the technology problems early on. It becomes very frustrating. If you want to be traveling and working, I think that that's I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. I think if you want to yeah, travel a recipe and, for disaster, it, it, I think it is. Yeah. I have found in my own life that that's very frustrating to try to do that. So I make sure that I'm way ahead on everything when I leave. And then I, I literally stop what I'm doing. Let's get into the experience. I, I get a hotel and I park there for three days and I work and then I check out of the hotel and I get back in the vehicle and then I go out and I adventure and I capture content and I shift into a different mode. <laughs> Right. And essentially that's van life right there. I mean, we are parked, we get our work done. And then at the end of the day, we're where we want to be. Yeah. That's amazing. The biggest thing that I would say for anybody who's looking to transition to a van life or a life on the road and whatever vehicle they may choose is try it at home first, get used to it, get used to working from home and being away from the office. It's also an easier way to work with your employer to convince them to try out the working from home, working remotely thing. If you're productive and things are going smoothly, it's going to be a natural next step for you to be able to propose. Why can I do this on the road? That's, that's a great piece of advice. And, and that's essentially what you did with us. You did it in smaller chunks first and then more and more time away. And now we have good ways to measure your success that allow you to do it from essentially anywhere. Which is, which is very cool. Now, do you guys find that you guys recently took a vacation? Did you find that you, that you needed to take a vacation from van life? Oh yeah. Yeah. So sure. walk us through what that looks like. <laughs> well, the vacation we took wasn't necessarily a vacation from van life. It was just a different version of it. Yeah. I mean, we, well, where did you go? You can't yeah. lead into yeah. vacation without saying where you went. Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a vacation. So right. we, we don't, I don't know. I wouldn't say that we really take vacations. Our goal is to travel and travel in a way that we couldn't ordinarily do with our jobs. And for this trip, that meant going to Nepal and going backpacking. So our goal was to. Oh, yeah. You guys went to Nepal. Yeah. (laughs) I thought you were going to be like, yeah, I went to Michigan. That wasn't a vacation. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, that wouldn't have been either. But (laughs) yeah, we we went to Nepal um, and we backpacked a portion of the Annapurna circuit. And it was wonderful and awful on certain days and definitely a thorough travel experience, but I wouldn't call it a vacation from van life. Um, you're still worried about where you're going to find water, um, where you're going to sleep that night and you're still sleeping. Well, much less comfortably than we do in the van. I'll say that. (laughs) I think I'm in the same program to me, the idea of like going and sitting on a beach in Hawaii, that literally sounds like torture to me. It sounds wonderful for like a day. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, and everybody's different. When is the last time somebody delivered you a pina colada in a pool? Uh, I can't, yeah, I can't think of when that happened. You should come to my dad's pool party. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I do find that when I take a vacation, I I want to go someplace like the, the Nepal one sounds perfect where I'm out of my routine. I'm not using a vehicle. Maybe I'm backpacking. Uh, One of the trips that I've been looking at is doing some polar skiing stuff because it would be so different and, but also a challenge where it is an escape. I find that 
when I can reset mentally from my job, that's when that vacation effect happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our vacation effect, I guess, on this trip was the fact that we were so busy worrying about not dying because we were so out of shape for the, for the, this was my first backpacking trip. I should say that. Sure. Um, So I kind of dove in head first um, and that disconnect from all social media, from all digital technology, and then coupled with the only thing I can think about is making it up this 2000 foot gain so that I can sleep tonight and not freeze to death on this mountain. <laughs> That's um, cool though. It really, yeah, it resets the way you're thinking. So it sounds like vacations and maybe even a time in a home, all of those things are just as important for someone that's van lifing as someone who's overlanding. I do find that it's nice to just grab an Airbnb. I love to camp but I don't want to camp every single night. It's nice to come and reset, get connectivity, get work done. That allows me to travel. Uh, I d- I'm not in a position where I can just travel full time and and not work. So I do find that, that that's also a nice relief from being in the vehicle all the time, which which leads me a little bit to van life in general. There, I did some research on the history of van life. Um, vans, in fact, it all came from caravan, which is a very old term. It's been around as long as the English language. It's, it's this idea of uh, a group of camels, a group of travelers, a group of vehicles, caravanning. That's where van came from, was from caravan. And they actually, the first van that was ever made was made by Ford in 1917. It's a model TT Ford, which had this enclosed rear storage area. It had a heavier duty rear axle. It had additional payload. Uh, we'll put a picture of it in the show notes because it's actually super cool, very cool looking. And you can see why if you look for uh, images of the the Ford TT for camping, there's all of these cool camping accessories. People added campers to it and they, they have tents coming off the side. So none of this stuff is new. They've been doing it since the first Ford was available that you could yeah, turn into cool. a van. So I think that's it's actually really neat. And uh, this is not the first generation to do it either in the 1960s. Volkswagen vans, people lived out of them. They My traveled dad was a van guy. Yeah. yeah. They traveled around in cool and like bitchin' Volkswagen vans and and they they camped out and they hung out at music events and they did a lot of the same things that are being done today. So, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, over, overlanding is this new thing. It's not a new thing. It's just become a very popular thing. Yeah. Van life is not a new thing. It's just become a very popular thing in recent years. But people have been van lifing since the first van came off the yep. assembly line. Some of them line. are still that, out there. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. We've run into our fair share. But I think, yeah, the, the biggest difference of van life then versus van life now is that modern technology has enabled working professionals to participate in that full time. Yeah. I mean, we know it's it's no longer Chris Farley van down by the river. No, it's financial advisors and people in hundred to $200,000 Mercedes sprinter vans. And I actually run into those more often than I run into someone who is barely getting by in a van. I, cause I think it is still expensive. It's expensive to put fuel. It's really in the, expensive. It's yeah. expensive to put fuel in the vehicle. It's expensive to buy the vehicle to start with. Uh, even your van, Brittany, which is what year is it? 2006. So it's a 2006. It's still a 35 to $40,000 van. Right. Yeah. And, and which is much more expensive than most vehicles of the same vintage. If you were to look at a 2006 forerunner or a 2006 grand Cherokee it would be a fraction yeah. of the price. Well, and it's, it's 35 to 40 with everything built out. Sure. Um, but 
you know, it's, that's the stuff that you're going to need to go get out there. And a new van that has all wheel drive or low range and other accessories that allow it to get remote. Uh, those are 120 to 200,000 plus. I mean, the, the base model and correct me if I'm wrong, you might know Matt, but the base model new sprinters, I believe are $63,000. I don't know the exact price. I, 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 I will close, say they're that close to 60 if they're all wheel drive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say we've been looking recently at the Winnebago Rebels. Um, you know, some people kind of comment, "Oh, it's a Winnebago in quality," but I, I, I think that a lot of the components are there, and most importantly, you can actually go and you can you can buy one, and you can you can participate in van life tomorrow right. if you want to. You know, a lot of these specialty van companies are booked out a lot of lead time, a year, two years for a lead time. Well, even if you're going to do it to yourself, it's minimum of three months of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're driving a uh, mode four by four from Storyteller Overland right now. That's actually what we brought from California. And it was, we picked it up at a dealership and it was ready to go. And it had everything that you could need in it, every system that you could need, hot water and shower and toilet and it is appealing. Yeah. And what, and what are those low cost? range and went off into the desert? What do those cost? Uh, I believe they're about 148. 140. Yeah. What? And I think that they are expensive without a doubt. But when you look at the prices of RVs in general these days and then yeah. the financing options for them, it becomes relatively affordable very quickly for many people. Yeah. And I do think that's an important identifier is that you can go buy a new van and you can finance it. I would be very careful to ever recommend that someone do that. I think that people should always be buying what they can pay cash for. But if you, if you're looking at, I'm not going to live in a home, this is the life that I've always wanted and I can get it at a low interest rate. It may be something worth considering, but the other idea is maybe you start with a much less expensive van, which is like what you guys did that allows you to save money pay the van off that you're in and then use that to leverage up to newer, to newer models without having to, to pay the profits of a, of a much larger financial corporation. So absolutely. Everyone always asks, what does it cost to live in a van? And that's just such a, such a vague question, really. I mean, it really depends on your lifestyle and everything that you need for comfort and that you do normally. But if you have a van that you've already paid off, then I don't know. You're paying for gas and groceries. Yeah. And so it depends on how much you drive and what you normally eat. If you're going to, if you're going to buy an Astro van for $4,000 and build it out with the basics and you're in, you know, another two, $3,000 and then wander around the country, it's going to be really, really cheap. I secretly love Astro vans. (laughs) Totally. Like they're kind of cool. I don't know if you ever saw it, but Tim O'Neill did a, a video. That was on, awesome. Will it, will it drift in Astro vans? That was and awesome. it is fantastic. Yeah, that was, I think they like welded the rear diff or something cool like that. Yeah, no, that was, a, that was a great video. And I, th- I think that because we always want to be very transparent in our advice, I think it's a mistake for people to go out and spend a bunch of money on something that puts them in financial shackles again, like they had with a home. So that's why I think what you've done, Brittany, is so notable. You bought an affordable van that's well within your capability to pay yeah. for it. I do think that take advantage of the opportunity to get out of a mortgage, out of rent, buy an inexpensive van, 
Also see if you like it because then you don't have the depreciation of something new. If you, if you buy a new, a brand new Sprinter with a full build out for $160,000 and you decide a couple months later that it doesn't work for you, you've taken a huge depreciation hit. That, yeah. You've just paid for somebody's vacation house. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, now this is a, of course I'm, telling you my personal advice, but start with something that's affordable that while you're making an income, you're starting to put that money away. And then you take the van, you make some improvements, Mm -hmm. you sell it for a profit and you take that profit plus the money you saved. And then you move into a, a nicer vehicle. I mean, what you guys have done is you have, you have a vehicle that's worth as least, at least as much as what you paid for it. Cause the van you have has gotten more and more popular so it's highly in demand. And then you guys are going to leverage that towards your next build, which is going to be what, Chris? Uh, well, right now we're currently rebuilding the interior of the excursion. And it's a little bit of a compromise on the interior space. It's not as big as a van, mostly in the height. Uh, but it has the four-wheel drive capability that we're looking for um, and the range that we're looking for. And it checks all the boxes for us to get further off the grid without uh, paying a huge uh, payment on new vehicle, like you're saying, and yeah, you, all you the own new. the truck and you're now reducing your vehicle expenses by half because right. you'll be getting rid of a vehicle and you'll be able to take that money, invest it, save it. And then eventually you take that plus your excursion, which is going to be worth a lot of money. They're not making those anymore and they're very popular. And then you leverage up into whatever that next thing is. So I think those that are listening, um, we don't, we never want to give the impression that you go out and spend a bunch of money on something you can't afford. Um, I think that that's always a mistake. I think people always regret it. There's a momentary feeling of euphoria that you have this brand new, super fancy vehicle. If you can't afford a $150,000 vehicle uh, cash, you probably shouldn't be financing it. Yeah. And I think that probably it's a safe bet that a lot of our listeners are going to think that they need to get a four wheel drive four-wheel drive vans is even used ones are very hard to come by. They're very expensive right now. And I would just, if you're looking to get into van life, I would encourage you to consider looking at a two-wheel drive. Plenty of people have driven around the world in two-wheel drive vehicles. Lord knows that the VW buses have been to every corner of the globe. Yeah, And you look at travelers like uh, Brad and Sheena from Drive Not to Drive, who took a two-wheel drive van again down to South America. Yeah, I mean, the they world, had a great adventure. The world runs on two-wheel drive vans. Okay. I mean, think about it. Every address, All the delivery vehicles, every yeah. address that is capable of receiving packages, it comes in a Sprinter van. Yeah. Pretty I mean, much. We, we went down a <laughs> this crazy dirt road in Nepal. I would hesitate to even call it a road. And we were in a four-wheel drive and we thought that we were pretty cool and that we were really, you know, challenging the vehicle. And sure enough, not two minutes later, a bus, two-wheel drive bus came down and did the exact same route. And I think that when you visit other countries, you'll be able to see just how capable a two-wheel drive can be with the right driver. And, and I think I was uh, chatting the other day around this idea that with each level of capability, it provides the an access to a more remote location. So um, there are advantages to four-wheel drive and all-wheel drive. So a two-wheel drive van will be able to get you a lot of places that allow, even allow you to get further away from other people that are boondocking. But there's some risks with that, especially if you don't have experience around self-recovery. The, the next advantage is an all-wheel drive van, which is how many of them are delivered now. The Ford, new Ford Transit in particular is a good example of that. That allows you to get a little further, maybe down some sandy tracks, things that would challenge a two-wheel drive vehicle. It allows you to get out onto a beach yep. if you 
want to, which is also really nice. And the idea of adding that capability is, especially in a van platform, because I don't want anybody to be misled into thinking that these things are designed to do the Rubicon. You've got to get up into the like the Eagle Hout con- conversions to be able to have capability that allows you to do remote technical terrain. So most of these all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive vans, what it allows you to do is get a little further off the beaten path, a little further away from the crowds, truly boondock, which lowers your expenses. So there are definitely some advantage to the four-wheel drives, but I don't want anybody to think, because they're still very low vehicles. They have very long wheelbases, terrible breakover angles. Yeah, I yeah always, they're not I always, ideally suited. I always question when people are turning these things into rock callers. Like when yeah. I see a Sprinter on 35s, I'm kind of like, why? Like yeah. you have, you're spending a lot of money to have something that's less capable than like a stock forerunner, right? They still yeah. can't articulate. They're still very tall. They're still very, long. and a lot of the times the conversions on these things cost another vehicle, you know? Yeah. The conversion, um, like an Eagle Hout conversion, although it's extremely well done, properly engineered, uses all Mercedes components, but it's $90,000. So it costs more than the van and more than a tool drive van, a brand new tool drive sprinter, more than the van to get it converted to this low range locking differentials type of 37 inch tires. And that was the most capable of the ones that I've driven, but I did drive a, a stock, uh, stock sprinter a few years ago and it struggled on even just a basic trail. It really struggled a lot of tire spin, a lot of scra- scraping and, and a lot of spotting and a lot of very close paying attention, uh, which you've got your house. How much, how much risk do you want to expose your yeah. house to? Right. So I think, I think it's important to recognize that you're not going to create a land cruiser or a G wagon out of a van that you may have to go something like what, what Chris and Brittany are doing with the excursion to get that level of capability. But if you're in a van, I don't think that all wheel drive is a bad idea because if you like to go skiing, if you want to go out onto the beach, I think that all wheel drive is a great solution. Yeah, like I, I love the idea of just the four wheel drive sprinter and, and yep. keeping it relatively, relatively stock. stock. Yeah. Put, know, some put, good, a, put some good tires on it and speak in my mind. Yeah. There we go. There yeah. We go. It's a vehicle that will force you to prioritize the travel and not the trail. Yeah. I, I think, I think vans are, you know, when they're four wheel drive equipped, I think they're they're for getting you out of or getting you through soft surfaces. I don't think they're really for much more than that. Yeah, I would agree. Mixed, mixed surfaces on established roads and that established road could be a secondary road that maybe has some, some erosion and other little issues and some yeah. sandy crossings, but that's pretty much what you're dealing with. Valley of the gods, yeah. Okie Dugway. Yeah. That we kind had of some friends who were recently in death Valley and it, uh, it snowed while they were there and the passes on either side became impassable for a two wheel drive. Yeah. And that's where the all wheel drive, four wheel drive van really is where it pays off. Well, and that kind of leads to a question. What would you consider to be the ultimate van right now? Like if you guys, if I could give you a blank check and you guys could go buy any fully prepared van, not make it yourself, go write a check. Which not one would allowed you to say van again? No, uh, she knows that I have a Volkswagen problem. It's terrible, but, uh, no, I, I mean, I don't think that even money is the issue that would prevent me from getting the van. I want it's importation laws. Uh, the first generation sprinters, the T one ends are remarkable vehicles. It's why we have one. They were not available in four wheel drive in the U S and nobody is really offering a factory level conversion kit on them. So he gives you a blank check and you want to buy a nineties sprinter van. (laughs) 
Yeah, man. <laughs> you guys are have. you guys I mean, are totally van lifers. Yeah. I mean, we love the van we have, and we definitely challenge it. And um, we did a full loop around the country this year, and we caravaned with the excursion and yeah. with the van, and we pushed the van to get to as far as it would go. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing: if you're if you're in a two hundred thousand dollars Sprinter van, or even a hundred thousand dollars Sprinter van, Ford Transit, Nissan, sure. whatever it is, there is a level of worry that is going to come with taking that vehicle down places it shouldn't be. There's a level of worry that's going to be there when you take it down to Mexico. Um, When we went down to Baja like last week, we parked in the middle of Ensenada and we slept in the van overnight and nobody looked at it because it's an early 2000 sprinter van. It looks like a delivery vehicle, right? Right. Okay. I'd take issue with, with this. So everybody thinks they're, it's a delivery vehicle. Mm -hmm. Try living in Fruta like I used to and try living outside of Telluride. Or I've been in San Diego for six years. It's the same thing. Yeah. There's, there's so many, like, and I guess my question from that is, is stealth camping still a thing? Cause to me, it seems like the jig is up. Like everybody knows, especially in the West coast in desirable locations. Like if you're in Telluride and there's a white van parked on the street, right? the cop is going to knock on the door, right? Like, it's like, like that's it's less that ship a, has sailed. Yeah. People, as soon as you see a white sprinter van now, it's pretty much assumed that there's somebody sleeping. in. It's it. funny how I've, uh, at least my brain has been rewired where I used to be like, oh, okay, that's a plumber right. or, or, or a carpenter or, or whatever, yeah. whatever and tradesman. People are creative with it. I mean, I won't throw this person under the bus and name them, but we know people who have traffic cones and construction hats that they put in the front seats at night so that people are convinced that it's a construction van. <laughs> or you uh, could even put some logos on the side, like yeah. Joe's plumbers. Oh, or, yeah. Right. Yeah. I yeah, mean, there's, there's whole, uh, forum threads dedicated to creative signage that people put on vans like magnets and stuff. Um, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. But it, it is interesting. I mean, we, we've kind of come to the conclusion that even though my excursion certainly stands out, it's not going to be the vehicle that people assume you're sleeping in. Yeah. So for stealth camping in cities, it's actually a little bit more advantageous than the sprinter van. What comes to when I, when I mean about the worry with the sprinter van it is more theft than anything else. The yeah. stealth camping isn't so much an issue, but if you have a hundred thousand dollar van and you've got lights on it and a roof rack and surfboards, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get targeted for theft. And yeah. we, we saw that when we were down in Mexico last week in Mexico, I would just say is a very safe place, but yeah, I've never had any issues. Down yeah. There. We, we okay. did have friends who they parked their van and they left it in the same place for 24 hours, which isn't a good idea. And they were broken into. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, it's just, the. I think, yeah, it's less to do with sleeping in the van and being stealthy. It's more, we like the van and the look of the van because it doesn't have anything mounted on the outside that we have yeah. to worry about getting stolen. And it's the old school drivetrain, new motors, new diesel motors, especially with the diesel exhaust fluid and ultra low sulfur diesel. They struggle, um, especially if you're leaving the U.S. or North America. I think there's a lot to be said for any older Mercedes platform. I mean, I think about how durable well, your bias. Yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, I think about how durable my G-Wagon has been. It's been pretty amazing. I mean, it's not that it's always been reliable, but it has always been durable. And always yeah. been amazing. Well, I don't know if it's always been. If for me, I love it. But yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a bread van kind of. So. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to an interesting question. So the, around this stealth camping and everything else, what ethics do you think need to be people need to be keeping in mind around those things. What, as a, as a van lifer where you're, you're now living out of your vehicle, what do you think are some of the things that 
you would like to see some van lifers take more responsibility towards, be more mindful of, be more respectful of. Um, How do you you now don't have a mortgage and you're maybe taking advantage of a parking spot in front of somebody's home. What are some of the things that you can do um, or even camping remotely? What are the most important things that you think people need to be doing to give back and to make sure that they're not creating a negative impact? Well, I mean, I'll start with the respectful part. We never park in front of somebody's house. We are always looking for commercial districts that would otherwise be unoccupied spots that we can park we are very careful about being in one area. We usually, well, we will never stay in the same spot more than one night in a row. As soon as it's 6 a.m., we're up, we're moving the van, we're going somewhere else. We come in after dark and it's not a big deal. We just want to have zero impact on the surrounding area. But to be honest, I think that Brittany is going to be able to speak more to this. She's been heavily involved in the van life community, especially the work that the van life app has been doing Uh, in the San Diego area, dealing with a lot of these issues. Not sure if you're aware, but San Diego has been a hotspot for van life issues. The housing is expensive there, and it's become a very popular option. And a lot of the residents have noticed. So that's been a big legal battle recently. And aren't they also, they're also dealing very much with homelessness now as well. So I think it makes it a hot. hot That's part of the regulations and the laws that they're putting in place is that They are lumping this van life community with the homeless community. And there's a, there's a large difference between those of us who are living in these expensive sprinter vans that we have put a lot of time and money into maintaining and respecting our vehicle versus someone who lives in their vehicle because they have to, and they have it parked on the street for weeks at a time. And from that, there's littering problems. There's drug use problems that are all uprising within the San Diego community. And they've created laws that said, well, now you're not allowed to sleep in your vehicle in the entire city. Well, that lumps us in with those other people. And I think that the Van Life app is trying to bring awareness that people that are in their vans, which the type of vans and the way that we live are different from those other people. And one thing that they do to to give back is they arrange community cleanups Um, which are every other month and they go out within the city of San Diego. We try to uh, attend as many as we can whenever we're in the area and they just clean up the beach and they make it aware that this van life community is different and we do give back and we do care about our environment. So, yeah, I mean the van life community these days is not the people living in the van down by the river. Um, They're working professionals and people who are contributing to the local economy, people who are going to the breweries, the restaurants, buying fuel, people who often live and work in these cities. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the challenges too, is a lot of, I suspect that a lot of the, the folks that are displaced, many of them still work. They just simply cannot afford to live anywhere, but in their vehicle. And, you know, my, I certainly have a tremendous amount of empathy for that. I, I left Los Angeles at 19 years old because I couldn't afford to live there. I went into the military because I could not find a job that would pay me enough money to be able to live in that city. And it, you know, I think that that's a real challenge. And I, and I'm wondering how the van life community can help not only support 
the local cities that they're enjoying and occupying, but also to raise the the standard of living and the level of, of opportunity for the people who don't have that choice. And you mentioned that, Brittany, earlier before we started the podcast. And I think it was a really important differentiator is that someone who's living in van, doing van life is someone that has the choice to do that. Right. You could live in a, an apartment or you could live in your van. You have the choice to do one or the other. Uh, whereas I think a lot of people who are living in their car that are actually more would be cl- classified as homeless, um, they don't have a choice. And I wonder if there's a way to really help in both direction, help the community and also help the people who don't have a choice. Yeah. One thing that they are working on is um, educating those people about being more respectful about their surroundings and Chris said, we always come late and we leave early. And if you have to live in your vehicle, that's something that that's a public parking space. I don't see the difference in that parking space being occupied by someone who's in their vehicle or someone who parked there for the night and walked into their home. The difference is, is are you leaving garbage around your vehicle? Are you using, are you self-contained? Yeah. I mean, has there been any advocacy for like some kind of self-contained certification, you know, for van life? I think that's something that they would love to see. In New Zealand, that's, that's a huge thing. We went down and we rented a sprinter van for a few weeks. And, you know, one of the big things is that you had to be self contained certified right. to camp in a lot of these places. They were oh, fine for to you to manage gray water, right. black water. Yeah. Yes. I mean, cause that's, that's the, you know, the unfortunate reality of, of, of living on the road is that all of the excrement and the things that, you know, come out of you then have washing to go dishes. Somewhere. Everything, sure. Yeah. Right. And, and I know a lot of, a lot of communities have, have really struggled with that. The, the small town I lived in, in, in Colorado, that was kind of the thing that would constantly get brought up as yes, we recognize that there's the, there's the $200,000 sprinter with the two $10,000 mountain bikes on the back. That is really the people staying here. But then there's also the, um, the homeless people respectfully, you know, yep. again, I empathize with the situation, but there is so much gray area, I think between that. And, and I believe that that's a challenge that both the van life community and the overland community face. So, uh, trails that 10 years ago, like the Mojave road, um, that were hardly ever driven. And I remember the first time that I drove the Mojave road, I drove for hours without seeing tracks in the sand in front of me. They had been blown clean in the weeks or days at least before someone else had driven across. And now and it's the Mojave highway. It is. And there, there are clubs and there are organizations that will have hundreds of people, if not dozens of people show up to go use a public road um, that can't handle that kind of abuse. Uh, and then if, of course you add on top of that excessive speed and low driver experience, and you end up with a lot of damage uh, to the trail. I mean, we're even familiar with some folks that have done trail damage to the Mojave road because they were driving too fast and those kinds of things happen. So I think just like overlanders need to take responsibility of like, let's minimize our impact. Let's make sure that the size of the group is appropriate to the conditions. Uh, I think the van life community can also benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And maybe an app is the way to do it. Maybe that app is the way to, to like your, your green, that area is green. There's not enough people staying there. There's enough. We're not creating too much of an impact, like kind of like ways works for, right. for driving. Right. And then it starts to get to yellow once there's too many people hanging out. They in this. have that on, uh, there's a trucker app actually that, that does the exact same thing. When it's you clever. look at truck stops that are in the area, it will show you whether it's green, yellow, or red based on the number of spaces that are available at that truck stop. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a great way to minimize the impact Absolutely, and to show that the, that the community is taking responsibility 
for me. And then that just means, hey, I've got to go over to this other spot right. where it is green and there is space. So that way we're not overburdening the community. I, I just went hiking in Sedona just the other day and I could not find a place to park for a popular trail to hike. It was down every single side street parked in front of everybody. I, I don't know why anybody would want to live in Sedona now. It's you cannot you can't escape it. There's like it's overrun by tourists. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing this explosion in adventure and outdoor activity popularity. And so hiking trails and off-road trails, all of it is just becoming extremely crowded. And we have to begin looking at how do we manage this? Yeah, just disperse the impact. The secret is go to New Mexico. There's no one there. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's true. really pretty. It's beautiful. Yeah, it, it is, is beautiful. And that's what's going to be. It's people are going to have to take responsibility for going to areas that where there isn't as much impact. So- Without naming necessarily an exact spot, what's been some of your highlights, like your favorite campsite or what, what are some of the things that now that you've had a few years in the van and you've stayed in places as varied as, you know, Eastern Canada to, to now in Baja, what were some of the highlights? What were your top two or three experiences, Brittany? This is always a really hard question. We love the Pacific Northwest. I love waterfalls. I love red rocks, anything. I grew up in Minnesota, so I grew up generally pretty outdoorsy, but I big waterfalls and red rocks are something that is just far from anything that I grew up with and spent time around. So anytime that I can get in that type of landscape is what I'm looking for. How about you, Chris? What were some of the highlights? Well, I think I love a lot of the places that everybody else loves. You know, Baja is beautiful, the California coast, the Pacific Northwest, to switch things up, I would say one of my favorite spots that you don't hear about very often was definitely Newfoundland. Newfoundland's great. Newfoundland yeah. was spectacular. There's not a lot of traffic up there. The ferry ride out there is awesome. It is very um, cool. And there's some insane campsites that, you know, you can camp on cliff edges overlooking the ocean or in between some really stunning mountains down in a valley on a lake and there's no one around. That's funny because actually all four of us have been the new, like, which yeah. is like just a place that not very many people <laughs> go. Yeah. Yeah. Matt and I were there with the E7 years ago. It's a cool place. Yeah. It is a very, very cool place. I just let the secret out though. Yeah. It's ruined. Along with New Mexico. You know, what's, you know, what's funny though, is even though I've, I'm never going to mention the truly special spots that are special to me, right. Where I don't, I don't want a bunch of people to show up, but you'll mention a trail that is relatively obscure and difficult to get to. And you'll go back years later and there's still nobody there. I think that people look for accessibility and they look for good weather. And it just means that the Mojave road is going to continue to get abused because people won't drive the additional time it takes to get into the Northern part of of another park um, or another area. Uh, they just don't, they just don't tend to like death Valley doesn't see a lot of traffic cause it's that much further away. Right. Um, than the Mojave road is or Anza Borrego or something like that. Yeah. So, it's the convenience factor. So um, mix things up a little bit. Why don't uh, you guys tell me what is some books that you guys have read the last couple of years that you think that have been pretty definitive. We try to ask guests that are on the show, like what you have know, been some impressive things that you've read? You know, it has nothing to do with travel um, or overlanding, but one of the books that I enjoyed recently was The Book of Joy. Um, it has hmm. the Dalai Lama and yeah, Desmond awesome. Tutu. Yeah. Did you listen to it as an audiobook or did you read it? Uh, I read it. Yeah. I'd also recommend maybe considering the audiobook because they, they hired actors that basically have the same accent as oh, those really? two. It's really great. 
It yeah. is, that's a beautiful book. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's great just, recommendation. We live in such a time of contention and turmoil and especially coming up on elections. Now reading that book where you just have people from totally different parts of the world, different religions coming together and just talking about life and joy and laughter and sadness and mm -hmm. just the experience that we all go through. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's a great book. I would agree. I'll have to put that on the list. How about you, Brittany? Um, I would say the last couple of years, definitely with the amount of road trips and things that I've gone on, I haven't gone the audiobook route. I'm much more of a podcast person. Um, yeah. So I like to nerd out on science podcasts. And Nobody stuff. listens your to podcasts. What's, yeah. your, <laughs> what's your favorite podcast? Besides the Overland Journal podcast. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I really like science versus and undiscovered. Just silly questions that get answered scientifically, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Wild ideas is a great one if you like the outdoors. Oh, cool. And I, I've started to, to listen to more also to, to learn how to be a better podcaster. But one of the ones that I've, I've really started to listen to regularly is Dr. Peter, Peter Atia. He's a, a doctor that specializes in lifespan. So it's not just about living to, to be a hundred. It's about living as healthy for as long as possible. And he's, he's also a race car driver and he has a, a, a bunch of similar entries. He's in, into watches and other stuff that I like as well. And he's a great host and he brings on some really thoughtful, uh, like thought leaders, medical thought leaders. And it's a great podcast. I'd highly recommend people check it out. So how about you, Matt? What's, what's been your recent read or, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't really do many audiobooks and I don't do many podcasts. I'm kind of a Luddite stuck in the nineties that listens to grunge music. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I have to say that I still really like paperback books. My, my life is so digital. My life is so connected that for me, I, I don't want to have the screen in front of me. I don't want to have the computer on at night. I still read books and I, and I read travel books because they're a great escape right now. I've really been on a, on a big Paul Thoreau thing. Some of you may know Scott and I are going to Namibia next week, Africa theme. So I have, uh, yeah, just, just finished reading the last train to Zona Verde. Cool. Um, Southern Africa, you know, travel journey by Paul Thoreau. Um, and I really, great suggestion. I, I, I really enjoy that for, for those of us that aren't audiobook enthusiasts. And do you have a new gadget? We do our gadget of the week kind of thing. Anything that you're let's, digging on? Let's start with you guys because I have been on a spending freeze. Oh, but, <laughs> you know, Chris, anything recent that you've been digging on? Based on living in a van, we uh, we picked up this thing called an Omnia oven, and it's basically this little donut-shaped pan that sits on top of your camp stove or any propane stove um, and acts as an oven to cook things. So yeah, those are able, really cool. Yeah, we've really been digging it. We use it every day. They can, you can get a silicone liner for it, so you don't really have to use much water to clean it. Um, and we've cooked brownies, pizza, nachos, chicken wings, oh, cinnamon rolls. I had, weakness. I had Brittany's cinnamon rolls in at Overland Expo East. That was amazing. Yeah. We, we just served cinnamon rolls in, in Baja to the van group and it was definitely a crowd favorite. Nice. I, I would, I would like it to be noted that I did not receive any cinnamon rolls. <laughs> <laughs> you got to come early, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you do. There wasn't very, I think there was only four or five of them that would fit in there, but that was really cool. Yeah. We've, we've since devised new ways to double the capacity. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And Brittany, how about you? Um, you'd asked me earlier about something that we like in the van for kind of a van hack. And, you know, we have very limited space and we keep all of our clothes and packing cubes and, 
uh, try to compress as much as we can in there, but then you have to put clothes on that are very wrinkly. And um, we have a Dawn wrinkle release spray and it is great and it smells good and um, really works really well. So, so it's made by the company Dawn and you just, you kind of put it up the shirt or whatever on a, Actually, you yeah, just get do, dressed. Do you, do you put you it just, on and then you get then dressed you spray and then you stand like a mannequin. And oh, that's Chris awesome! Spray you. It's great. <laughs> oh, that's Wait, really does it funny. actually work? Because oh, it I, really I'm, does work. It's great. I'm I'm always wrinkly. Yeah, yeah, that was my big thing. So I can't stand wrinkly shirts. I used to iron even my t-shirts, and it's actually done a really good job in keeping me sane. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, the, we have to laugh about the Overland community. And one of the things that is funny about the Overland community was LaCroix and, and any f- form of any form of like flavored sparkly water. It's like but I, entry level sparkling water. Well, right it now. is because I have now found what might be the uh, the Tom Shepard grade. <laughs> OK, you, you you tell me your sparkling water and I will, I will okay. reveal my secret. OK, so I found this company in Colorado and the name of the sparkling water is Dram Apothecary. And I am not going to disclose how much they cost each um, because I would be embarrassed to do so. But they also make bitters and other things for like really nice cocktails. But it's all botanicals and they, ta- they taste fantastic. And, uh, and they're made in Colorado. So it's, Dram, not like Dram. Drink, it's not like you're drinking the ghost of a fruit. No, it's it's like really flavor forward and all organic and really healthy for you. It's just a way to, to have something that's refreshing that isn't filled with sugar. And that's, that's really hard these days. It is. And like sugar kills us. It's as simple as that. So if we can, if we can avoid high fructose corn syrup or even cane sugar in what we drink, but it, it be enjoyable. Yeah. So dram apothecary, I'm digging Mm. it. Mine is also organic. Oh, nice. It's from a, a boutique brand called Kroger. Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> Simple Truth Organics. It's, I don't even know how much it is. It's cheap. It's good. Orange vanilla. That's the one. Ooh, that's it's the one. one. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. I, I would be lying if I were to say that we didn't have three cases of some sort of bubbly water in the back of the van. Yeah. It's you got to keep it around. I, 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 I yeah. Currently, I just have Pacifico Light. <laughs> we're on, we're officially on a water tangent here. We should probably wrap this podcast up, but I would like to ask both of you a final question. What is the best piece of advice you could give to somebody that is, that is on the verge of getting into van life? The answer can't be just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was something that, that was legitimately helpful that you would like to pass on? That's I, a crickets. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple actually. Matthew One would be, um, uh, goes off of what Scott was saying about your expenses. I mean, really understand what your true expenses are today, uh, before you buy the van and figure out what you're willing to spend and what your lifestyle could be and try to get a realistic view on that. Um, cause the van life is already bottom line. It, it can be stressful. You're worried about water and shower and where to sleep and, Um, You don't want to have the added stress of your financial situation as well. Yeah, I would say don't look at van life as travel. I can't count the number of people, including myself, um, who the first year they're on the road, get out and they plan some huge trip around the country or around all of North America or wherever they live. Uh, with aggressive timelines and they end up doing absolutely nothing but working and driving. You have your whole life on the road and try at least for the first month 
to say, all right, I'm going to go one or two places in the first month that I'm on the road and just enjoy it. So slow down, slow Slow down, down. plan less, just take it easy and let the journey take you. Yeah, that's really great advice. And I think it does come back to what we talk about often on these podcasts, which is don't overspend on the vehicle because then you're completely beholden to it. Then you have to work 50 hours a week yeah, or you have fewer options or you start to stress about how am I going to make this big payment on a $200,000 vehicle. Uh, And it steals the joy that we should have from being able to be on the road and to experience the world. So buy something that you can easily afford where even if your job conditions change, you have time to go get another job. You can keep your savings. Um, And if you're planning on traveling and then reintroducing yourself to the workforce, plan for that too. have money and savings that allows you to reintegrate with the workforce, put a down payment on a, on a home or to put a first and last month's rent on a, on a rental. So plan financially for that. It's, it's something that Instagram promotes um, lifestyles that are oftentimes out of reach especially for the people who say that they do it every day. These, a lot of these folks are barely getting by and they don't, you don't hear that. So plan very conservatively. Don't overspend on the vehicle. Yeah. And don't think that every single day is going to be the Instagram van life. It's going to be a Walmart parking lot or a truck stop parking lot every now and then. Yeah, Or the toilets or the toilet's going to break or you're going to get sick in the van and like, imagine throwing up in your, in your van. Like it's, those are difficult days and that happens. Oh yeah. We've been there for sure. Well, thanks guys so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. See you guys. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.